Today's sermon text is Luke 23, verses 1 through 12. You recall from where we were last week when we left off in the gospel according to Luke that the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead. The problem was they couldn't do anything about it because you see when the Romans had come in and occupied them, they had taken away the right for the Jews to enact capital punishment. So if they were going to get Jesus to receive that punishment, it was going to have to come at the hands of the Romans. And so we see today what exactly they did. Before we turn to Luke 23, verses 1 through 12, let's turn to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance as we look at it. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you today and we realize how, how very weak we are, how very weak we are, not just physically limited, but mentally and spiritually. And we ask that you would work in our hearts and in our minds and our eyes and our ears, causing us to, to know your truth, to see your truth, to be shaped and molded by your truth here this morning. Cause us to see you as you truly are. Cause us to love Jesus more because of the time we spend here together today. Cause us to love you so that our very lives are changed. May we be those who lives lives shaped by the cross. For the sake of Jesus, your Son, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please follow along now as I read from Luke 23, verses 1 through 12. This is the inspired word of God. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. He was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before that they had been at enmity 
with each other. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, as we look at this passage, we, we pick up from where we were last week. We see the religious leaders taking Jesus to the political leader, Pilate. We need to understand who Pilate is here where we see that the whole company of them arose. That's saying the, the whole Sanhedrin, the whole council that Jesus was before. They all arose, not just one or two of them, not just a couple of them, but the whole council arose and brought him to Pilate. Pilate was the Roman prefect or governor who was over Judea, where Jerusalem was. You know, it's an interesting thing until the, the mid 20th century, there was no ancient record of Pilate that dated back to these days. There were some who thought that Pilate was just somebody who had been made up by the authors of the Bible, that he didn't actually exist, that they thought that the whole story of Jesus perhaps was one that had been fabricated by people. But then in 1961, Italian archaeologists uh, discovered a stone that's referred to as the Pilate Stone. It's a uh, damaged block of carved limestone that's got a, a partially intact inscription on it attributed to, uh, well, mentioning Pontius Pilate as a prefect of Rome, of the Roman province Judea from AD 26 to 36. All of a sudden, there was this proof that indeed there had been someone who they thought hadn't existed someone who corroborated the biblical testimony, someone who placed the story of Jesus firmly in the history, in the line of time and space as we know it. This is very important. We need to know that Jesus and Christianity as a result are a matter of historical fact. They're not just a matter of opinion, not just a matter of thought, not just a matter of some set of morals or ethics or rules that somebody came up with. Certainly there are morals and ethics that are involved with Christianity, but they're not at the center of what or the core of what Christianity is all about. Because if Christianity is, is just about morals or ethics, then it doesn't really matter whether there really was a Jesus or not. It could be that it's just this great fable that somebody came up with and, and they're telling us all these wonderful things and he's saying that you should love others, uh, love your neighbor and, and be nice and give of yourself and, and that would all be fine if all Christianity was was a set of rules. But it is not just a set of rules. It is far more than that and we'll touch on that this morning in a little bit. The council, the whole company of them, we see in verse 2, began to accuse Jesus, saying, we found this man to be misleading our nation. What they're saying essentially is that he was, he was leading people away from Roman rule. He was leading people into rebellion. He was inciting them. He was a rabble rouser. He was revving up things and, and getting people to rebel, trying to turn them into rebels that are wanting to put down the Romans to kick them out. This, of course, was not true. Jesus was not inciting this kind of rebellion. And they went on to say that he was forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. In essence, 
He was saying, don't pay your taxes. Once more, this is not true. A false accusation. You'll recall not too long ago when we covered Luke 20, what was it that Jesus had said, but render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Specifically, telling them to pay their taxes to Caesar as it was owed. They went on to accuse him, saying that he himself says that he himself is a king, specifically the Christ. Well, indeed, he was the Christ. As such, he indeed was a king, but he wasn't the kind of king that they thought. But that's where they they needed to go. It was really at that point that they needed to focus their attention. Because that's not really what they had accused him of. That's not really what they had found him guilty of, was it, in their little trial that they had had. They had found him guilty of blasphemy in their minds. They thought that he was claiming to be God, which indeed he was. But you see, Pilate couldn't care less if Jesus claimed to be God. He could claim to be a God, that's fine. Other people can claim to be a who cares, Pilate would say. But if he claimed to be a king trying to remove the Romans, now we have an issue. And so that's the point at which they attacked. They came and Pilate questioned him. He said, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, you have said so. You recall, it's the same way that he answered the Sanhedrin or the council back in chapter 22 when they had asked him, are you the son of God then? And he said to them in verse 70 of chapter 22, you say that I am. It was almost a reluctant affirmation. He in essence is saying, yes, but that doesn't mean what you think it means. It's something different. Well, there was probably more to the conversation than just these words. I think Luke tends to, in this section of his gospel, really compact things and leave out some details. And and there likely were more details, but, but this gives you the sense of all that was said. And ultimately, Pilate vindicates Jesus. He says to the chief priests in the crowds in verse 4, I find no guilt in this man. He says he's not guilty. Pilate shows here that he's not just some bloodthirsty ruler looking to, to be a bad guy. He's not just looking to exercise strength and, and just demonstrate his power. There's at least something in him that wants to do the right thing. It would be easier, of course, to just go along with this and convict Jesus. But he says, no, there's no guilt in this man. But the religious leaders persist. They don't let him off that easy. They don't just say, okay, if you say so, Pilate, never mind. No, they push. They persist. Luke says they were urgent. He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even, to this place. Now, now Pilate was no idiot. 
He was politically savvy. He'd been around the block a couple times. He understood what was going on. If we look at Matthew and Mark, they, they tell us specifically that he understood that, that the religious leaders weren't actually seeking justice in this case, but rather they were envious of Jesus. They were envious of the following that he had, envious of the eloquence with which he spoke, envious of who he was and all that he was accomplishing, and they wanted to stop him for that reason. That was why they had brought the charges. But Pilate didn't want to convict him. He knew he was innocent. <clears throat> but he lacked the courage of his convictions. He didn't just release him there. He could have, and it would have been done. But Pilate lacked the courage of his convictions. How often do we lack the courage of our convictions? There are times, are there not, in our day-to-day -day life when we come across a difficult situation where we say, I know what I should do in this situation. I know that this is the right thing to do. I know this is the right way to treat somebody. I know that I should stand up and say something about this injustice that's going on over here. I know that there is something I should do here. But it'll be hard. It'll be inconvenient. It, it might cost me something. And so we lack the courage of our convictions and we just let it go. We do something we ought not to do or we don't do something that we ought to do. And that's how Pilate was here. Sometimes maybe we don't actively sin, but we just try to kind of move ourselves out of the situation as if God won't notice that we had this situation confront us. That's kind of what Pilate does here. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. You see, under Roman law, the way it worked is, is if you were accused of a crime, you could, be, you could be tried either in the place where you had been charged or the place from where you came. It's kind of like if I got charged for a crime in Texas, let's say, I could either be tried in Texas or I could be tried here in Michigan. Seems kind of weird to us now. Well, why would they do it that way? That's the way they did it. And so, Pilate had an out here. You see, because he learned that Jesus was from Galilee. And Galilee was Herod's jurisdiction. Herod was the tetrarch over Galilee at the time. You recall Herod the Great, when Jesus was born, had tried to kill Jesus. And so he killed all the young boys who were born, remember, with the wise men and that whole story. Well, his son was Herod Antipas. And that's the Herod we're talking about here. When Herod the Great died, his kingdom was split up, and the part that included Galilee, Herod Antipas, was placed in charge of. And this Herod was in Jerusalem at the time because the Passover was taking place. And everybody had come to Jerusalem. And Pilate really didn't want to have to deal with this. That's really what he wanted from the start. We learned from John that actually at the very beginning he had just told the Jews, you guys just judge this yourself. Take care of it yourself. Don't involve me. But when they had persisted, he had dealt with it, found no guilt, but they kept pushing. 
And so he turns him over to Herod instead of taking care of the situation himself because Pilate was more interested in his self-interest than he was in true justice. If he was most interested in true justice, in doing what was right, then he would have let Jesus go because he knew that there was no guilt in him. But he didn't want to be inconvenienced. He didn't want to have it cost him politically. And so he did not pursue true justice. I saw a quote the other day from Ben Franklin. It said, justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. I think it's a good quote. Ben Franklin said a lot of stuff that was really wise. He said a lot of stuff that was really unwise. But I think this is on the right side of the scales for Ben. If we're really concerned about justice, and we should be concerned about justice, because Jesus is concerned about justice, then that means not so much just being outraged when we are treated unjustly, but also being concerned about others being treated unjustly. So we should pray that God would give us a heart that seeks true justice, even when it costs us, even when it's inconvenient for us, that we might not be like Pilate. So he turns him over to Herod. He turns him over to Herod, who, like we said, was in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And Herod was excited. Herod was happy. He had, he had wanted to see Jesus for some time. He was interested in him. He, he was interested much the same way he had been with John the Baptist. You can see in Herod there, there is some kind of spiritual interest, some kind of spiritual intrigue in the mind of Herod. He's, he's concerned about these things. And, and John the Baptist even, and, and you might know that, that it was Herod who actually ended up killing John the Baptist. But before that whole episode, we go to Mark 6, and we see that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. He wanted to hear what John the Baptist had to say. There was something about this message that John the Baptist had, even though it was uncomfortable, even though it was perplexing, even though it confused him, there was something about it that drew Herod, that he wanted to listen to it. Likewise, now he wanted to see Jesus. These are good things, but it's not enough to just be vaguely spiritual. Not, not enough to just want to be involved with spiritual or religious things. It's not enough to just say, well, I'm a religious guy. I believe in God. That's not enough. Because Herod could have said that. It's essential that we have a true and living faith in Christ Jesus if it is to be of any true and lasting worth. If we have a true and living faith, then it will be a faith that is not merely an academic interest or, or a vague belief in God's existence, but rather it will be a deep and abiding trust in Christ Jesus wherein we turn ourselves and our very lives over to his lordship trusting in him as the one and only Savior of mankind, our one and only Savior, 
We're not just interested in what he has to say, but our lives must be governed and ruled by what he says. But that's not what Herod wanted. That's not what he was looking for here. He was just looking to be entertained. He just wanted it to be be entertainment for him. Sometimes that's what what our spirituality can be sometimes for us. We just want to kind of have some spiritual entertainment. We just want to tickle the religious bone in, in our body and just, okay, we got that out of the way. That's not enough. We must not be this way. We must have at the core of our lives a realization that we are sinners separated from a holy God with no ability to reconcile ourselves to him. And we must realize that we need to repent of our sin, turn away from it, and follow Christ Jesus instead, trusting in his sacrifice for our sins on Calvary's cross. That is the only faith that is of any worth. So Herod questioned him. He questioned him at length. But he made no answer. Perhaps Jesus didn't answer because he knew it would make no difference. Kind of like last week, remember? He said, well, even if I said so, you would not believe me. That's likely true. Perhaps it was just the fact that he had gotten to the point where where Herod had so hardened his heart that he didn't want to waste his words. That can happen to us. You know, the chief priests and scribes stood by accusing him, but but Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and were mocking him, we see. Much like last week's text. Remember when the, the, the temple guard had Jesus blindfolded and they beat him. And, and they said, prophesy, say who it is that's, that's abusing you, who's beating you here. Tell us they mocked him as a prophet here. Herod and his soldiers are mocking Jesus as the king. They array him in splendid clothing, verse 11 tells us. They probably grabbed something out of the back of Herod's own closet, right? They, they grabbed some royal robe and they, they draped it over Jesus' shoulders and, and laughed and laughed and laughed. Ha-ha! Some king you are! They laughed at him. They poked at him. They mocked him. It's the same point we made last week about the temple guard mocking Jesus. We need to return to that point for two reasons. One, because that's where the text takes us, right? And that's what guides a sermon is where the text goes. We go where the text goes. This isn't just me getting up and spending the week thinking about what should I talk about this week and here's what I'm thinking about and here's what's on my mind and I read this story in the paper and and I want to talk about this because it's my interest. No, we follow the text. We've been doing it for almost two years now as we've marched through the gospel according to Luke. We've gotten here to chapter 23. There's only 24 chapters. We're almost to the end now. Someone says, hallelujah! But... But we're at the point now where Jesus is again being mocked. And so we have to deal with that. What is it to be mocked? It's to be treated in a way that lacks the respect that one deserves. They certainly are doing that, and that's a vital message. That's the other reason we need to look at it. It's a vital message for us. We must not mock 
Jesus. Perhaps we would not blindfold him and physically abuse him. Perhaps we would not dress him up in robes and make fun of him. But indeed, we do mock him when we treat him with less respect than he deserves. And I dare say, there is not a one of us here who treats Christ with the respect that he deserves. We all mock him daily, perhaps even hourly or moment by moment. This is the king of kings that we're talking about. The Lord of lords, the creator of the universe. Remember what we we said in Psalm 95 when we were looking at it before. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The heights of the hills are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the sheep of his pasture. Is that how you live your life every day? Is that moment by moment? how you live your life, it's not for me. I must confess. My life is full of other distractions, doing other things, heading other ways. And I fail to give Jesus the respect that he is due. I mock him. And so do you. just like Herod. Well, Herod didn't ever find him guilty either. He instead sent him back to Pilate. And that's where we end. (laughs) He sent him back to Pilate. Next week we'll deal with what happened at that point. We're back where we began. Jesus before Pilate. So, So what? So this is just some little Bible study and what, what can happen here? Isn't there more application to it? Well, well I, I think perhaps this is the application of this passage. We need to realize that we must deal with Jesus. Pilate tried to avoid dealing with Jesus, and yet Jesus ends up back before him. He needs to deal with Jesus. He can't avoid it. Herod tried to mock him and tried to avoid him, but you can be sure there is a day where Herod will have to deal with Jesus too or put more directly where Jesus will deal with Herod. And for each of us, we too need to deal with Jesus. We we need to do it, and you need to do it now. You can't just say, I'll do that later. I'll I'll mess with that religious stuff later. Right now, I'm just going to live my life. No, you must deal with Jesus now. And the reason you must deal with him now is because if you fail to deal with him now, you are set against him. That's our natural state. You see, that's why our hearts become hardened. That's what happened with Pilate. That's what happened with Herod. Their hearts became hardened. And as Sinclair Ferguson puts it, he says, unless we silence sin, sin will ultimately silence our conscience. That, that's what can happen to us if we don't watch our steps, if we just wander off according to our own desires, our own direction, do our own things. We wander away and our consciences become hardened. We, we end up enemies of Jesus. There is no neutral ground. 
Psalm 95, we read the words before. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. Pray to God that your hearts might be tender, that the Spirit might lead you, that Jesus might be the example and the shepherd that you follow. But know this, even if you fail, brothers and sisters, you will fail. There is still good news for you. For all of this led to the cross. You know, Herod and Pilate is as vile as they were, as evil as they were, as terribly as they had sinned, there was still recourse even for Herod and Pilate. And there is recourse for you. No matter how bad you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter where you stand now, if you trust in Jesus, give yourself to Jesus, rest in Jesus, there's forgiveness for your sins. There's reconciliation with God and there is life eternal for you. But we see with Herod and Pilate that they became friends on that day, verse 12 tells us. Before that, they had been at enmity with each other. Once again, this is the fulfillment of a prophecy. Psalm 2, verse 2 says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. You see, that's what happens with Jesus. He, he joins people together in enmity against him or in fellowship with him. There really is no middle ground. It's one or the other. Either you are his and are joined together with those who are his, or you are not his. And you are joined together with those who are his enemies. They're really the only two options that we have. We can either be an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of Christ Jesus, an enemy of God Almighty. Or we can be a member of his family, a member of his body, his beloved for whom he died. You see, that's the other way he joins us together. He joins us together as one body, as one family. That's what we celebrate together at this table. We, we have communion. We are united together with him and with one another. We come to this table and we set aside our selfish needs. We set aside our selfish desires. We set aside our pride. And we set aside our, our own self-directed, self-glorying, inward-gazing we set aside even those things that are rightfully ours. Something might be rightfully ours, but that doesn't mean we need to retain it. We are willing to set it aside. We don't come seeking to be the greatest at this table. No, we, we don't come making sure that we get what we deserve. No, we come to the table following the example of Jesus. The example of Jesus who, who was more concerned with what others needed than with what he deserved. He came as a servant, giving of himself, loving others, reaching out to those who were even his enemies, offering forgiveness 
and reconciliation and ultimately tearing down the dividing wall of hostility that existed not only between God and man, but between Jew and Gentile, those of different ethnic backgrounds. And so we come to this table in the same way, regardless of, of our ethnic background, regardless if we're male or female, regardless if we're Democrat or Republican, regardless of if we, we like new songs or old songs, regardless of who we are or what we've done, we come together as one body, one family, Christ's at this table. Jesus was willing to pay the price that others might benefit. He was willing to set aside that which was rightly his, and he was willing to lose his life that we might have true life in him. He had valid arguments. He could have said, you know, I, I don't deserve this. He didn't. He could have said, it's not fair. Frankly, it wasn't. But what does the prophet Isaiah say? He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Or Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So just as Jesus entrusted himself to the Heavenly Father, let us entrust ourselves to him, not trusting in our own good deeds, not trusting in our own works, but trusting in the one who gave his very life for us. All those who trust in him celebrate the union that they have with him and with one another. Let us take a moment in your bulletin you'll find the Apostles' Creed printed as our affirmation of faith. If you do trust in Christ Jesus, if he is the one on whom you have trusted, the one that you depend on for your salvation, then join with me and with the body of Christ here at Calvary in reading these words.